As Jeff mentioned just a few minutes ago, we are uh, in week three of a sermon series called Ecclesia Officium. And again, as I've pointed out the last couple of weeks, Ecclesia, that's the Latinized version of the Greek term ecclesia, which means to gather. And then officium means um, sort of the duty uh, or responsibility of the church. And so the question that we're undertaking over the course of this sermon series is really to sort of say, all right, what is the duty of the church? It's important to think about, well, what is the church supposed to do? And uh, so as theologians get together and have had this uh, discussion debate over the years, they've really come down with five different things that every healthy church should do. And it's worship, education, we've covered both of those the last couple weeks, it's uh, friendship or fellowship, which is what oftentimes we call it restoration, sometimes we call mercy and justice, and then our topic today, which is reconciliation, which oftentimes people call evangelism. Now today, we're going to be uh, really introducing this topic of reconciliation through a clip from a 1995 movie called Billy Madison. Now, some of you may have heard of this movie before. Um, In it, it stars Adam Sandler as the son of a wealthy business owner, In order to take over the business from his father, he has to go back through his life and he has to right some past wrongs. Now, admittedly, the movie isn't great, but the clip does a pretty good job of introducing this theme of reconciliation. So, before we begin, let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, thank you very much for your word. Father, I thank you that in it you um, very clearly show us uh, who you are and you show us who we are and who we're supposed to be. Father, you show us what the church is supposed to be, what the church is supposed to do. And so, Father, I pray that we here at Seven Hills Fellowship would be faithful to that calling. Uh, Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Clearly, the Bible talks a lot about reconciliation. It gives us images and stories about this theme of reconciliation. The thread begins in at the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Immediately after they stumble and they fall, God the Father enters into the garden and He pursues the terrified and ashamed man and woman as they're trying to hide from Him. We also see reconciliation in the story of Jacob and Esau. The night after, Jacob wrestles with, with God and he's given this new name. Jacob and his brother, after years of being cut off from one another, are reconciled on the shores of the Jabbok. We see reconciliation in the story of Joseph, if you're familiar with that story. He's reconciled with his brothers after they sold their little brother into slavery. We see reconciliation in the story of Elijah, where God allows his emotionally exhausted prophet to run away, even aiding him in his attempt to flee, only then to meet him later at Mount Horeb. In the story of Jonah, God pursues another fleeing prophet We clearly see the concept of reconciliation in the shocking story of Hosea and Gomer when Hosea pursues and takes back his unfaithful wife. In the New Testament, the theme of reconciliation is personified in Jesus as he accomplishes reconciliation with Zacchaeus, with Thomas, and even with Peter after his public betrayal. Jesus even stated the purpose of his ministry. He said, "'For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost.'" Jesus' ministry was reconciling broken people with a merciful God. And though Jesus told several stories to illustrate that very point, perhaps no story is more memorable than the story of the prodigal son. So we're going to start there this morning. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 15. Verse 11 begins this way. And he said, this is Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. 
Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked these things, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, that is the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So very clearly, this is a story about reconciliation. It's actually about a lot more than that. But what does this story in particular have us to teach us about this idea, this concept of reconciliation? I'm going to really make two points out of this. And the first point is this, that reconciliation is required because sin is personal. Reconciliation is necessary because sin is relational. Now, I'm guessing that the word sin probably sounds a little bit archaic to many of you in this room. It sounds like a word that might have been used during the Salem witch trials, or it might have been used during a 1950s tent revival. In the Old Testament, there are about nine different words um, that are at times translated as sin. One of those words means crooked, perverse, or twisted. In our current culture, we might view sex trafficking or child pornography as sins in light of that particular definition. Another one of those words means to stray. Again, we can quickly see how that might apply even in 2022. If your boyfriend or if your husband were to cheat on you, it's likely that you would very much consider that to be a sin. Still, another word used for sin in the Old Testament has the intent of rebellion or betrayal. Again, we can think about offenses in our world that fit into that category even today. Too many of us have been betrayed by friends. We've even been betrayed by parents. Those people were supposed to protect us. They were supposed to take care of us. They were supposed to be faithful to us and lay down their lives for us. And yet, that betrayal has done untold damage in our lives. Clearly, sin is personal. It's very personal. Like the Old Testament, the New Testament has several different words that it translates using the word sin. Hamartia means 
to miss the mark. Maybe your mom tried to love you the best that she could, but she missed the mark. And as a result, you have been deeply and permanently wounded. The word paraptomai can mean to willingly or even unwillingly transgress, but on the willing side, think about a two-year-old who reaches into the knife drawer even though you just told her not to. Or think about the husband who willingly does the thing that he's promised never to do again. A transgression, a willing transgression in particular, can be immensely painful and deeply destructive to any relationship. Still another word, plana, can mean to seduce or deceive. And even in a culture that has an uncomfortable relationship with the concept of truth, when a friend, a child, or a spouse lies to us, especially repeatedly, massive damage is done to the integrity of that relationship. We could go on and on. We could give more and more examples, but hopefully the point is clear. Sin is always personal. Sin is always relational. Jesus made that paradigm-shifting point 2,000 years ago in the story that we just read. The context of the prodigal son here is incredibly important. If you remember, Jesus had been hanging out with sinners. He went over to their houses. He ate with them. And in turn, they were beginning to show up at his lectures. Jesus even invited some of them to be his disciples. The religious people were deeply offended by this troubling trend, and they made their concerns known. And so Jesus responded by telling this story about two brothers. One brother, the younger, went to his father, and he asked for his inheritance early. To our ears, that might not sound like such a big deal, but in that culture, a request like that would have been shocking. People would have been just absolutely appalled. It would have been the same as wishing your father dead. In fact, verse 12, speaking of the father's response, Jesus says, and he divided his property between them. What's truly amazing is that the word, the ESV and the NIV, both translate as property is actually bios in Greek. In other words, if you were to read in Greek, it would say that Uh, He divided, the father divided his life between them. The son's selfish request was deeply costly to the father. His treatment of his father would have been deeply offensive. It would have been deeply hurtful. It would have broken the father's heart. And the younger son's sin didn't just wound the father. It would have wounded his brother as well. When the father did die, the older brother would have received a double portion of the inheritance. That's the way it worked in that culture. And so by removing 33% out of the retirement account early, the older brother was missing out on a ton of compound interest. We could go further into the younger brother's sin and its cost to his relationships, but let's for a moment just transition and take a look at the older brother and his sin and its cost. As you remember, the older brother came in from the field where he had been working, and he heard the sounds of a celebration. When he heard that his brother had come home and that his dad was throwing a party, the older brother was indignant. Jesus says that he was angry and refused to go in. The Greek word, which the ESV translate anger, has the intent of punishment embedded into it. The older son, instead of being happy or relieved that his little brother had come home, much less that he was alive, just wants to exact punishment on him, to stand as a judge over him. He was furious. He was disgusted. In particular, at his father's mercy, he was so frustrated, so disgusted, that he refused to go into the celebration. Now, ancient Near Eastern readers would have recognized just what an offense this act was. 
not so much towards the younger brother, but really towards the father. At some point, the father heard about the older son's anger, and he went out to try and persuade him to come in. Theologians agreed that the father had every right to be angry, that he even had to go out to try to talk his older brother into coming inside. But it's interesting because it says that the, the Greek word here that Jesus uses about the father going out to speak to the son is parakaleo, which if you remember, the paraclete is the term for the Holy Spirit. Parakaleo means to come alongside someone and to gently counsel them. And so it says the older father goes out. He has the intent of speaking to his son gently. The son, however, instead of responding with repentance or with remorse to his father's gentle engagement, explodes in anger. Embedded in the older brother's response is all sorts of vitriol. He shouts at his father, essentially saying, look here. He then likens working for his father to being a slave. He uses the word doulos, which means slave, to describe his place in the home. He then accuses his father of mistreating him and taking him for granted and taking advantage of him. His rant reveals how he really feels about his father. Ancient Near Eastern scholars argue that the father would have been justified in disowning the son then and there for such public disrespect. Instead, the father responds patiently and mercifully saying, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Now again, Jesus is making any number of points in the story of these two sons, but this point is crystal clear. Sin isn't about broken rules, it's about broken relationships. Let me say that one more time. Sin isn't about broken rules, it's about broken relationships. Sin is always personal. So what else do we see in this story about reconciliation? The next thing we see is that reconciliation is vertical, meaning we have to be reconciled to God, but it's also horizontal, and then reconciliation is also internal. Let's quick give a very fast definition of reconciliation. The Greek word that the New Testament uses for reconciliation is katalaso. It usually or originally was used as a financial term to describe settling up with someone after an incorrect financial transaction. Something was off in the exchange and had to be made right. This term is then used metaphorically or figuratively in the New Testament to describe uh, the process of restoring a broken relationship, of bringing two people back into relational harmony. That's typically the way we understand the term reconciliation in our culture today. In most cases, when the Bible speaks about reconciliation, it's vertical reconciliation. In other words, it's reconciliation with God. Individual humans are reunited with the creator of the universe. That's the primary focus in the story of the prodigal son. That's the main idea. Jesus is telling the Pharisees and the sinners that God isn't who they think He is. He isn't someone to escape from, as the younger brother clearly believes. And he isn't someone to bribe like the older brother assumes. God, according to Jesus, is actually like the father we see in this story, gracious, merciful, and longing for his boys to come home. It's this type of reconciliation that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5 when he writes this, all this is from God, all this grace, all this mercy, all this being made new, all this forgiveness, rings, robes, sandals, parties, all this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. We, as individual Christians, and we as a church, have been given this ministry of reconciliation. We have the privilege and the responsibility of revealing and representing God to the people in our domains. This ministry and this message are not optional. Instead, this ministry is essential to our identity as being created in the image of God. We are to reveal and represent Him, every single one of us. We are to do that through the gospel. It's also essential to our identity as a church, as Seven Hills Fellowship. Now, I could go on and on about that, but let me switch gears and go from the vertical to the horizontal. Let's look at this concept of horizontal reconciliation. We see this horizontal reconciliation throughout the Bible. I love the story of Jacob and Esau. We referenced it earlier. As many of you know, or maybe not not that many of you know this, but Jacob was the younger brother, and he stole his brother's inheritance by deceiving their father and then running away. The story ends years later when Jacob decides to finally return home, and he meets his brother on the shores of the Jabbok River. The tension builds as Jacob fears that Esau will kill him as an act of revenge, but what happens instead is beautiful. We read of the account in Genesis 33, verse 4. It says this, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, if you look at the screen, you'll see a painting by George Watts. And in this painting, it depicts this meeting of the two estranged brothers. You've got rugged Esau. He's the character on the right. And he's leaning in to hug his little brother while gentle Jacob's eyes there on the left are downcast. It's a beautiful story, and it's a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Now, in the same way that we are given the ministry of vertical reconciliation with God through Jesus, we're given the ministry of horizontal reconciliation as well. At the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the disciples the following admonition. He says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This picture of reconciliation, the one that Jesus talks about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't describe blame, only responsibility. If you know there's brokenness in a relationship, whether it is your fault or their fault, as Christians, we are to be reconcilers. We're to be, we're to be peacemakers. We're to be the kind of people who humbly and courageously move towards relational dissonance with the goal of reconciliation. These attempts at reconciliation with parents and spouses and friends are oftentimes terrifying. Often they feel hopeless to us. But as Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 8, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, we can't control the outcome, but we can control the input. We should be people who are known for reconciliation. Finally, let's look at this idea, this concept of internal reconciliation. Internal reconciliation is necessary because the impact of sin is not just vertical. The impact of sin isn't just horizontal, meaning it impacts people that we're in a relationship with. The impact of sin is very, very much internal. Sin makes us less human. Sin pollutes us. 
Sin corrupts and mars the image of God in us. It takes us down a path of disintegration. It warps our hearts. Think for a moment back to that story of the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. If you remember, Jesus tells us this. He says, he squandered his property in reckless living. That's the language the ESV uses. The word translated property here is a translation of the word usia in Greek. Literally, usia means substance. The word translated squandered is dia scorpizo, and it means to scatter widely and thoroughly. There's sort of a superlative and exhaustive element to it. And so on one level, this phrase means that he, the younger brother, threw his wealth around carelessly and totally, just disseminated it everywhere. If you've ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, you get a picture of how quickly the two main characters can blow through a million dollars, leaving nothing but a suitcase of IOUs. That's kind of what this younger brother did. But I think there's a deeper level to the, to the language that Jesus uses here. On the deeper level, I think Jesus is implying that what happens to us when we sin is that we become disintegrated, that our substance, that our very essence as humans becomes scattered. We become like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. In our disintegration, we end up as a shadow of what we were created to be. We find ourselves far, far away from home, alone and starving on our hands and knees in the mud, eating food intended only for animals. The intent of this story, of course, isn't just to focus on the younger brother's sin. In fact, it's actually to communicate that the older brother is every bit as sinful as his little brother. His sin may be more camouflaged, but it's creating disintegration within him every bit as much as the younger brother's sin was disintegrating him. It's been eating away at him internally for years. The older brother has become bitter, judgmental. He's become obstinate. His sin has led him to feel entitled and angry. In his sin, he's created narratives, and he's made assumptions about both the brother and the father, and then he's lived as if those assumptions were real and true, even though they may not have been. His sin has made him ugly and repulsive, and he can't even see it. Both brothers, both of them, are disintegrating under the weight and the corruption of their sin. Both brothers are becoming less human. Both desperately need internal reconciliation. Their self needs to be brought back into alignment with what is true about who they really are, sons created in the image of their father. So much disintegration occurs in our lives because we, too, forget who we truly are, daughters and sons of God. And I'm going to end the sermon today with a scene from a movie called Blood Diamond. There's a, a boy in the scene named Dia, and his world and his heart are nearly disintegrated. He was captured early in the movie, brainwashed, and then forced to do awful things in order to become a child soldier. Solomon, his father, after looking for his son, finally finds him and rescues him. But just as they're about to escape, Dia, his son, pulls a gun on his father and threatens to shoot him. Ultimately, the situation is resolved when Solomon reminds Dia of who he truly is. Let's take a moment and let's look at that clip. Whether we realize it or not, many of us are like that boy, Dia, that son. 
we have, like he had done, we've done terrible things too. In our attempts at self-protection and self-salvation, we also have hurt our Father's heart. We've hurt those who love us the most. Perhaps the most harm, however, is what we've done to ourselves, to our own hearts. We can actually feel ourselves disintegrating under the weight of fear and bitterness. We are in desperate need of internal reconciliation. Like Dia, we need to be reminded of who we are, daughters and sons, loved by a father who deeply longs to bring us home. It's time that we lay down our arms and fall into his arms. And it's our privilege then to take that message of reconciliation to those in our domain. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the picture of reconciliation that your son gave us in the story of these two brothers, Father, and and the father that represents you. And so, Father, I pray that through that story today that... um, we would see maybe who we are, um, that we're more sinful than we realize, whether we're the younger, younger brother or the older brother. <clears throat> but Father, I pray that not only would we see our sin and its relational cost, Father, I pray that, that in that story we would see who you are, Father, that you, who you truly are, that you're a loving and merciful Father who longs for us to come home and is more than willing to forgive us and to give us rings and robes and um, a fattened calf, Father. Father, I pray that as we see who you are, that we would indeed remember who we are, that we are created in your image, that we are your daughters, that we are our sons, your sons, Father. And I pray that as we see that, that we would be changed, Father, and I pray that we would then take that message of reconciliation out into the world. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.